Hey, Joe. Hey, so we're in the mailbag. <laughs> Those are your feet sticking out of the top of the mailbag. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's I'm all dig- I see. I'm digging down. Ah, well, there's not... Are we, are we going to talk about anything this week? I guess we're going to talk about our mail, but nothing else really happened. Is there... Do I even want <laughs> to make that joke? Yeah. Illegal asteroid. You once called it illegal asteroid, didn't I, you? I don't remember who called it that. We called that show someone, illegal someone asteroid. Someone, it someone used those words because the show titles are always right. uttered words. Yeah. That's our, that's our shtick. Yeah, it's surprising. This, I'm, I feel real disorientation. You haven't asked me how I feel. Are but, we going to talk I'll, about this? But I'll share how. Well, yeah. I just want to say, I mean, I, you just made a joke about this week. And yeah, it's I know, so, I and, and so uh, I, I feel extreme disorientation. Um, and, and it, it's weird to, it's weird to feel so completely surprised by something you have felt completely overexposed to for several months, yeah. which is how I've been feeling mm-hmm. that, oh my gosh, I feel so overexposed in part. It felt that way because it felt so predictable. The outcome, the final outcome day to day, it did not feel predictable, right. but the final outcome felt extremely predictable. Um, boy, was that wrong. From mm-hmm. the perspective of uh, that I have, right, um, and uh, you yeah, know, of course, I, we can talk yeah. about you know uh, the popular vote did turn out the way that I thought it would. The electoral college vote did not, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I just feel extreme disorientation, um, and um, there's a lot to talk about with that. A lot of people are talking about that. I mean, yeah. you know, Jonathan Adler wrote this piece a while back about how it's irrelevant because. You know, people operate under the rules and we would have had a different election if people were trying to maximize popular vote, et cetera. There's so much to talk. I, well, I, I don't mean, want to get into it now, but because I don't think it, it's, it's in, well, go ahead. Yeah, it is. It is true. Um, it, he He's right that it would have been a very different election if that had been the way to determine the winner. And I didn't just say that yeah. I thought it was relevant right. to the Electoral College vote that someone else won the popular vote. A thing that's happened in our past as well. Yeah. Um, and and what, what really burns me about what you just said uh, in repeating someone else's words is that he's, he's, he's sort of rushing to tell me how to think and talk by fencing things in and out. Um, so it, he's right in making the lawyerly point. It's not l- legally relevant to the Electoral College outcome. That isn't what I was saying. So don't keep rushing all you folks who are out there telling me how to think and talk and feel. Don't keep rushing to tell me how to think and talk and feel. I don't appreciate it. I don't want it. I don't do it to you. I feel like I have the last few days, I've been trying to listen more and I've been trying to learn more as a way to kind of confront my own feeling of surprise. There's more for me to learn. There's more for me to understand. I didn't understand what was happening right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and for someone who, who likes understanding and talking and engaging with people and hearing more about what people are thinking and feeling, that's, again, disorienting. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I, well, you know, we've, we've talked. You, you know, you were over here on election night with... Um, for part it, of it. For part of it. And then I got tired and went home and yeah, et cetera. I, um, Boy, I, I, I feel, you know, I knew all along that, you know, you, you can look at the polls and the, and the poll models, which are actually pretty good, whatever everybody else says. And, and all along, it was basically the odds of Russian roulette that, that Trump would pull this out, right? It was, you know, 18%, something in there. And, 
Uh, and, and then in the days prior, it went up, and we, you know, I'm not even interested in getting into why that happened now. But um, the, what you talk, this feeling of disorientation, the way you describe it earlier, is is kind of what I felt too. That like intellectually, I knew that, but still, you know, it's not even that I was in denial about the possibility that that it could happen. And here I'm laying my cards on the table. <laughs> you know, I I was a strong Hillary Clinton supporter, as was I, uh, as am I, and I'd like to circle back to that in just a second, but, uh, but I never really registered emotionally because of the consequences for the rule of law and, and all kinds of other things and just the culture. And we're seeing that already. Um, you know, I, I even had some really like secondhand reports of stuff's going on in, in schools that I know, in other words, people who witness these things in schools, you know, there were at a high school, there was, uh, there was some boys sending pictures of coat hangers to girls hmm. by, via message. I mean, this sort heard of that course, one. Yeah. Well, I, I heard it secondhand. And there's, so there's this coarsening, which is, is not attributable to any particular Trump supporter and certainly not to any, you know, I think most of the conservatives who listen to this show and, and who we count among friends were, were kind of never Trumpers. There may be a few Trumpers out there, but they were, you know, they had issues with this kind of rule of law and, and, and somewhat courageously jumped off the train you know early yeah. but um but this is i don't even know i'm i'm getting back into the miasma of this i you know talk i i the morning after i think it, it felt like a funeral the morning after partly because yeah. everybody was sleep deprived and, <laughs> right. and like a zombie and i taught at 8 30 yeah and i couldn't avoid saying something to my right. students and you know when i started teaching i took some amount of foolish pride I think I don't. I don't know if I ever really thought of it as pride, but but I, it felt virtuous that my students didn't know if I was a liberal or conservative, right? Uh, and I was teaching property. There were courses where there was no necessary. You know, it, it would have been gratuitous just to insert politics for almost all of the topics. Yeah, and you know that's true of most of what I teach. In yeah, fact. but I I. I don't really do, I don't hide that kind of thing anymore. I, I certainly don't use my classroom as a gratuitous bully pulpit for exposing irrelevant, you know, espousing irrelevant political views. But I do a Supreme Court discussion group among students. I talk with students and I'm not shy about saying, you know, what my political opinion is, but I'm also conscious that I have a role and that role means I have responsibilities and I've, you know, really enjoyed connecting with deeply conservative students not just conservative students but deeply conservative students and exploring right. the different facets of of human nature and our different approaches to law and and, and i've it's been a, a source of great joy for me you know to interact with the diversity of our students and have them feel like they can come and talk to me and so it was like you know how do you how do you approach that as a law teacher in a in a in a discipline where what we do is so close to the metal of politics mm-hmm. right so close uh and, and yet, you know, in fact, one of the things we talk about is that distinction, you know, right. what is that difference? So what do you say to your students, some of which are feeling in danger or hurting right. and others who were happy with the result or at least not unhappy with the result? Like, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was to come in and, and take sides and, and declare that the, that the winners were really losers, or that the losers were the real winners or, you know, so I, I didn't want to do that, but I felt like I needed to say something. And so I did, you know, I, I, I thought there were two things relevant to law students. And those two things for me were 
our responsibility as a community to take care of one another. That regardless of how you felt, there were people who weren't just like disappointed election losers, as in, you know, years past, you know, 2012, 2008, 2004, 2096. I remember all the, you know, in each case, there were people who were very disappointed with the result. Sure. And, you know, you got to put on your grown up pants and, and go to work and, Absolutely. and oppose and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, or, or support, you know, whatever your position is. But with this one, there were people who felt rejected. That for some people, this felt like an attack. Yes. And, and, and I would say also, there were ways in which this election, um, as tedious as it became in some ways, um, with the daily, again, the sort of daily exposure to it. Um, this election felt to me like there, there was something so much more basic about law and about uh, a, an, an orderly society yeah. uh, that was also put at issue. And the, uh, the sort of um, nationalism and shading into fascism that that many people talked about in many media venues and many i'm not mentioning a new idea right this is something they were <clears throat> that was mulled over a lot uh and and that too because it seemed to be at stake and it seemed there's another sense in which you could say a feeling of that that um that pluralism's been rejected and that um and that authoritarianism has been embraced right uh, and that's a, a very disturbing feeling for me uh, it, as someone who has the views about law and politics and pluralism that I have. Well, that was part. Yeah. So the first uh, the, my two messages really both, feed, you know, come from that, feed into that. One of them was that whatever happens nationally, whatever this result, whichever way it had gone, it doesn't change our fundamental duties to one another in this community. Right. To get to know each other, to be inclusive to understand that people are feeling vulnerable or hurt. Even if the election had come out the other way, there might be people who are upset. Like, Very true. Reach out to them, get to know them. Uh, let people know that they are welcome here. And I think that was especially important because a huge part of this election was you know, a ton of people saying that some people are not welcome here or suspicious or dangerous. Right. And <clears throat> those people who were targeted by that kind of rhetoric exist in our community. And they need to know that you know, we are with them through thick and thin. And this community doesn't tolerate that kind of thing. So I wanted to remind the students that like their best asset is one another. They will certainly see that when they get into practice, right? They, Definitely. All the grades will recede into the, you know, into the, you know, waning horizon. Yeah. And what will stay with them are the people they can call on the phone that they remember from this formative experience. And that is something they either build together or they let collapse into, you know, nonsense. And, and people they can call because they, because they uh, trust them. Uh, because they were reliable, they were empathetic, they were right. genuinely enga engaging with them as another person. And so treating each other excellently and building a, a community of surprising interactions and of deep interactions and across, you know, different backgrounds. Uh, people grew up differently in different states, some of them in rural areas, some urban areas. Like you will be stronger if you, and, and it's just a joy of life when you get to know someone and they surprise you. Right. Um, it's part of what what I love about meeting um, so many deeply conservative students who just see the world differently than I do. It, it can be a real joy to see their worldview. Right. Um, it's not that, you know, of course, I've seen I've met plenty of deeply conservative people in the past and, and others who are more like, um, you know, libertarian conservatives that we know through the academy. And, you know, they're, they're, 
it's just a real joy, right? To, to enter a, a kind of an intellectual community and, and help to make it vibrant with these people. But there has to be that kind of, we're all in this boat together um, idea. And the other point I raised, which also goes to your point uh, of what was at, you perceived as at stake in this election and lots of people perceived was at stake in this election. And that is that our students and, and students at law schools across the country are training to operationalize the rule of law, to make real these things that we're, that we talk about as animating our society. Right. And, and that this, you know, 240 years, that's, that's what we've got. And it's not as though it was perfect on day one and we just, so long as we don't junk it, everything is fine. The rule of law is something that we make on a daily basis. Right. And it is, it's not just up to lawyers. I mean, that's an important point. True. But, but they are the people who are gaining the expertise and who are going to have frontline responsibility for maintaining it. And this is true. There, there have been heroes in all kinds of different administrations who have said, no, the rule of law requires this. You know, that it is you know, a piece of paper sitting in the National Archives is not going to guarantee democracy and, and the rule of law. It is the way that people treat that. You know, we've talked about this many times right. before. And Will Bode mentioned last time that, you know, parchment barriers, like, are, don't do anything. Right. So, uh, and that's, and he's right about that, I think. So however you're feeling about this election, you know, that's what I told my students, like, what, you know, whatever impotence you're feeling about, like, you're, you know, it will be up to you. You know, the state of Georgia, where they happen to be, or, uh, or, or D.C., New York, wherever our students go and wherever other students listening are, like, it's going to be you who inherits this 240, 250 years by the time, you know, what, whatever. But uh, it's going to be up to you to make whatever the rule of law is what it is, right? It's going to be your attitude toward these documents, your attitude toward one another, your ability to build a legal community that that makes democracy real, that makes, that, that causes there to be limits on, on power, on civility. I mean, we're constantly creating this. It's the people who, you know, even outside of the rule of law, you know, this school where this was this middle school where the middle school kids were chanting, build the wall at Latino students. It's like, you know, I, I don't know anybody conservative or otherwise who supports that kind of, it's not just impoliteness. It's a deep, it's an attack. It's a deep hostility. So who will be the ones who will stand up and say, that's not who we are? Lawyers are the ones who talk about the rule of law that way. The, you know, the rule of law is who we are. We can disagree about, you know, originalism or new, con you know, um, uh, living constitutionalism or, or whatever. We can disagree about these things, but we have, there are limits, right? There's a, there's a discourse which establishes the rule of law, which is not about agreeing always on what it requires, but on agreeing that that principle is important. Well, let me uh, let me complicate things a little bit. I I'm ninety nine percent agree with what you just said, and I complicate it only a little bit. You know, in major works in legal theory this past year, uh, one of the books we all read uh, together and talked about together, and this year was a great group. They they've all been great groups. This year was a, an especially great group for me. Um, one of the books we talked about is this play by Robert Bolt called The Man for All Seasons, which is about Thomas More's. Uh, conflict with Henry VIII over his uh, foundation of the Church of England and his series of divorces and marriages uh, and, and his ultimate uh, execution uh, at the hands of Henry's uh, underlings. And uh, everyone important in that play, uh, 
besides Henry, the king. Everyone important in that play is a lawyer. The good ones and the bad ones, right? And all of them are using lawyerly techniques to vindicate the ends they want to pursue. So the, the, the rule of law is something that lives in the minds and hearts of people. Of course, yeah. And a lawyerly technique is something that lives in the hearts and minds of people. And uh, one of the things you can do with lawyerly technique is talk about alternative visions of the rule of law. Yeah. So I think wrestling with the fact that uh, lawyers like the ones who pursued, uh, and and I think pursued Moore's uh, punishment, uh, his his conviction and punishment uh, and execution, uh, and and it's clear in the play that that it it looks like that was secured through a fairly transparent to some people act of perjury, right? Um, and that's lawlessness, not lawfulness. Um, still, it's all hanging by a thread. Mm-hmm. But if you think like I do that the constitutional principles that we have are principles of great decency and define a moral order that I'm on board with, yeah. then the rule of law is what protects that. Now, to the extent that those principles change, if we were to, say, amend the Constitution and create second-class citizens or, or do other things that I would consider immoral, at that point, I can say this society is not mine, and I will become a revolutionary, right, or, or a saboteur. We've talked yeah. about this on the show before, right, this, this, yeah, the, this the, being bought in. The, the principles, I, I mean, I agree with you, but and at the same time, it, it, if you know history, you know that, you know, the slaughterhouse cases are post-14th Amendment. Yes. And they're, I think, I viewed largely now correctly as, in, um, in some sense, a deep failure. Right. Of those very same principles. Well, this is... So... Exactly. I, that's, why I, you know, that's why I said 240 years of history since uh, the Declaration of Independence. And it's not as though these words alone created a moral order. Right. So if you were transported back to the moments after, let's even take go to 1789 after the Constitution is written and it protects the freedom of speech and you think it protects the freedom of conscience and and yet it protects slavery. It protects the property of slave owners and there is a and and there are no rights and there are no rights for women. Right. Right. And if you were suddenly transported or that or that culture was transported and grafted onto ours suddenly, uh, it would be unimaginably evil you would think right i mean i I would hope that anybody any of our listeners would if if we suddenly reinstituted slavery and took away the rights of women would say this is a deeply evil culture but there was a promise born at that point which has been slowly slowly worked on we've this point it's taken to like it's 240 years to get to this point where now no matter who you love you can uh uh, you can get married if there's consent right Uh, and um true consent (laughs) and that's a huge arc to get us to this point and to realize the promise of these principles and to grow them that that's a tremendous amount of work so it's not as though 
it's it's not as though there's a there should be a a, a fealty to um to the slaughterhouse cases or you, you know what I mean I'm, I I feel so emotional about this that it's hard for me to I understand articulate I'm still not this right. is one reason why we thought well maybe we should just do the show <clears throat> you know regularly and leave this for a few weeks until we have some distance on it I think our show in general we've not rushed to do things right away That's true. We, we've always been like measure twice cut once yep um, and and um and and I so. How can we find our way back? Uh, well, part, I, part of what we're doing is we are responding to some email that we got. Yes, and, and we know we've read them and we know what they say, so we know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, even though our listeners who haven't read them don't. Yeah, and we're not going to read those particular ones. Uh, but But know that we've heard you and, and that has motivated us to know that we needed to say something. Today. Yeah, post, post-election emails. Yeah. Um, from listeners. Uh, who have written before about other topics. So we, I think we have a good grasp of where of some of where they're coming from mm-hmm. um so i guess i just the only thing the only thing i would say again it's i don't think it's a disagreement and and i'm very in terms of what you said in your class i'm glad you said it uh and it, and i think something did need to be said i felt great relief this week that i am not teaching a <laughs> class this semester right, right truly yeah uh and 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 so i have great admiration for what i'm sure was your poise and your uh, sensitivity to dealing with the classroom in real time at, at at the most shocking and disorienting moment in time. That is how I would have felt about it at eight thirty that morning on Wednesday. Uh, and and I have to say there were there were tears among the students before I even started talking. I mean, it was like like that I said, does every, not surprise everybody me. been up all night, right? Some people were felt deeply targeted. Other people, you know, it's just there was a divert. No one knew quite how to feel. Right. I was broken up. But I was more articulate than I've been on this show, I think, because I knew exactly what I needed to do, you mm-hmm. know, and I knew the line that I needed to walk, uh, that I should walk. And, and the question that I have, and it's, and I'm not trying to quarrel, I'm trying to share a genuine question. The question I have is about the degree to which the rule of law assumes uh this is this is basically the Hart Fuller debate in a weird way. All I, know, over again, I know, right? I know, I know. Like the extent to which the rule of law assumes a kind of pluralism and humanism that is what you describe to your class, um, and and the person who would contest it would be the person who said, "Look, there's the rule of law in countries that we could name, and in historical periods that we could name in history." <laughs> that, yeah. that none of us would want any part of and we've done shows, or would want to live in. we've done shows on this in fact my whole article you know is about right. how we go from these things to 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 principles so i think it's adjudicate. i think maybe yeah. you say our rule of law well yeah is I, such that well i you know i when i was in I was that in, i heartily endorse. i was in law school in 2001 and and we i remember gathering as a, as a school uh on september 12th and there was a great feeling among my fellow classmates of true impotence. Like, what can I do? Yeah. This is a, you know, I feel hopeless. And there was a great irony to me. And of course I stayed silent because there were students in that room who had family in New York and, and it was not for me, but I've always kind of regretted not saying a little bit more on kind of two elements uh, of that day. One of them though, was that, you know, 
more is being invested in you than almost any other human being who's ever lived in order to solve exactly the, these kinds of problems, right? <laughs> right. I mean, like you're being prepared to, to speak precisely to these kinds of issues. Right. In a humane way, to bring all of your humanity to deal with this like kind of conflict. We need you, right? And so I, I felt that sense of hopelessness among the students, even just like just walking in, like I knew it just this kind of among a good number of them, despair, not knowing how to feel. I'm sure there were some who were, who were happy or at least like, you know, not unhappy, but still there was like, how do we deal with each other? What it, and I think it was an important message that, that you, you know, invested in you is responsibility for what that rule of law will mean in the future, right? You will create it. You will build it, whether it is deeply humanistic, whether right. it is filled with the values that, you know, the simple value of if someone gives you back too much change when you buy something from a store, are you going to tell them about that or are you going to pocket it, right? That, in that instant, in that split decision is a real question about our humanity. And the weightiness of the fact that it will be what they make of it um, is only made more only made more significant when we realize it's that way because it can't be any other way. Right. It's not that it will be what they make it because that would be kind of fun. Right. It will not be that's what they will make it. It will be what they will make it because um, they're kind of smart and it falls to the kind of smart folk. It's like, no, it actually can't be any other way. Right. So it's going to be what you make it, even if what you make it is a completely horrific monstrous pile of rubble because you that, will, that's what it will because be because you will be making it when you do your job correct whether you were conscious of that fact or not right and that and what could be weightier than that I'm hard to come up right. with a list right now for me yeah that's that's what, pretty weighty i <laughs> i wanted to speak to the to the power that they had and the responsibility that they had yeah um and i, I thought that was important yeah so uh, uh bummer I'm not going to start crying again. Good. <laughs> just because it'll make it easier to record. Not because you shouldn't cry if you want to. But well, no. It's it just, just makes it easier to record if I just, you're not. And if I'm not. I, I just can't stop thinking about the young girl who gets that message, you know, or the, um, yeah. fr- from, a, from a classmate, you know, or the, you know, the young Muslim girl, the young, you know, um, it was a friend I was talking about this with, you know, I, I, I have many friends who have received hateful messages over the last four months that they've never received before. Yeah. Messages of being unwelcome. Right. Yeah. And I was talking to one of them who was like, not even for him or herself, but we just couldn't stop thinking about the nine-year-old Muslim girl who's wondering what's going to happen to me. And it's like, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's scary. It is scary. Um, and and I think they shouldn't have to feel that way. The whole point of this country is nobody has to feel that way. I mean, that is if I see a point in the United States in our origins as a, you know, we we fought this battle so many times. Right? It keeps happening, but right. we keep and sometimes we lose it. You know, we um, internment. I mean, there, you know, we don't it, it is not a straight arc towards justice by <laughs> right. any any stretch. Right. Um, I heard this great, I heard this amazing thing yesterday um, where someone said in reference to that metaphor of Dr. King's that the, uh, more, the arc of the, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. 
And this person said, that sounds right, but I think it only bends if you pull on it. Exactly, yeah. And <laughs> like, he, and you, he, it doesn't bend by itself. And, 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 and goodness knows he would have agreed with that. Because, yeah. boy, did that guy pull. Exactly. Right? That's much more, that's much more important than the quotation. Yeah. Uh, is the, is a, like a picture of him pulling on it. Right. Um, it, you know, and it bends toward justice because I'm pulling as hard as I can. And just because I'm pulling as hard as I can doesn't mean it won't bend back. Right. It doesn't and mean the, there won't be setbacks. And the arc's and, a lot longer than we thought. Yeah. Uh, and it bends a lot more slowly than we thought, maybe, is what I'm thinking today as opposed to Monday. Right. Um, and, you know, I've said before that um, this is in the laying cards on the table phase of the conversation. Um, and I, well, I wonder what my students think about my politics. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Most, of the, most of the classes I teach, as I said before, it would sort of be gratuitous to bring up politics. It's sort of exactly, not, me too. Yeah. sort of not the point. Um, uh, um, you, my, my nickname on this show is Adam Smith, <laughs> right? <laughs> Suggests one line of, of thinking and yeah. how I think about antitrust and how I think about telecommunications and I'm certainly to the right of some folks. Uh, I'm certainly to the left of other folks. Um, uh, in Portland, I felt much more conservative right. than I in, than I do here. I feel much more liberal here. So it's a funny kind of, you know, of the same color looks different when you put it next to other colors, right? Um, just visually. Um, but 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 I have said to friends and family on multiple occasions that one of the most wonderful things about the last eight years to me has been that I see in the first family all the best yeah. of the country. Right. And that's going to go away. It was going to go away no matter who the successor right. was going to be. Yeah. And, and it's, and, and, and that point, and, and this is what, you know, a lot of people recognize, even people who hate the president's politics he's a fundamentally decent person. His family is fundamentally decent. It represents the kind of caring attitude we should take toward one another. So even yeah. if you think Obamacare was a terrible idea, and even if you think the uh, uh, marginal tax rates are way too high, whatever, you know, these are the kinds of normal politics on which we could, you know, I have opinions, Absolutely. But with, and, and I differ strongly from, from people within my community with whom I disagree. Yep. And uh, and that's fine. There's not, you know, and I, I enjoy, I think that's how society, cause yeah. I'm not right about all these things. No. There's plenty, you know, that I'm wrong and, about. And I think it's interesting that in, in, that I not only do, to me, do they represent really the best, uh, and I see in them so much of what I think is the best in, in our country. Um, they're both lawyers. Yeah. They both have lawyer, lawyer training. They both have lawyer experience. And, uh, and so I think they're, thoughts about the rule of law and all these things that we were talking about, um, I think are, are vital in, in just the way that we've been describing. And, and I, I feel as if they've contributed to that in a very significant, positive way. And uh, it, with all of their lawyerly training and lawyerly thinking, um, and, and that's quite significant. And, and it's, and it was so striking when governor Romney a few months ago in the, in the uh, still in the active uh, primary period, um, said the things he had to say right. <laughs> about who yeah. he did and didn't support in the Republican primary process, and it was very much along the same lines that that we're that we're describing. 
Mm-hmm. And so you could see the way in which he would, I think, say what you just said about, about the kind of nor- the range of normal questions of disagreement. Right. Um, and, and what's outside that range. Where you start questioning the ability to even have the conversation in the normal range. Right. Um, so, yeah, these are, these are very uh, disorienting times. And I think it was, you know, it was yesterday that President Obama had President-elect Trump to the White House and shook hands. Yep. By all accounts was gracious toward, and, and the President-elect was gracious toward the President as well, apparently. Yes. Um, but this is someone who had personally attacked him. Yeah, I not, found, not in normal political terms. Not in normal political terms. Correct. I, but, I found yeah. that image and uh, extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, the, for this upside, this sort of turning upside down on a roller coaster feeling. Right. Um, yeah. And and not in a way. And to you know, look, none of us is perfect. And and so you know. You know, I I don't want any of this to be sour grapes because, you know, right. like I said to my students, like, we all have preferences. You right. know, I, my horse has not won the race before. And, uh, <laughs> and so like, that's how I grew up. And then I said, and then I said, then I said, you know, to extend the metaphor, this is also not my first rodeo. Right. So exactly. I have, I, you know, uh, um, 2000 and 2004 did not come out to my liking. Um, <laughs> I was deeply disappointed, especially in 2004. Uh, I remember that feeling. Yeah. I know what it feels like to lose an election when you think a lot is at stake. Yep. And like a lot of people, this just feels to me profoundly different for the reasons we've been talking about, for the reasons that we are both upset about it, for the reason many people are upset about it. And, you know, and part of it is this uncertainty that we've been talking about, you know, offline, like this is a period during, we really don't know. Right. And so it's hard not to let your imagination run a little bit. It's also hard for me to, uh, uh, it is honestly hard to separate my politics from my kind of structural concerns and my concerns about decency and morality, because I, you know, I, I, there's no point in hiding it. I think that the president elect is a fundamentally indecent and immoral human being. Uh, I wish the best for him. I would like to see him acquire more compassion, uh, to be more honestly pluralistic and to have that kind of pluralism and humility shine through from an inner realization about the worth of other human beings. I have seen no evidence of that yet. Yeah. And, Nor have I. And, and, and I think that's a profound defect in a president. I think it is as much as I don't see the world the way that Romney did or McCain did or George W. Bush did, or even George H. W. Bush. Um, I, you know, and there were some things that, you know, irritated me during the course of the campaign a lot, <laughs> uh, during all of those campaigns, but this profound human defect was not something that I necessarily worried about. And it, and it enters, um, and I was angry with, especially George W. Bush. Mm. I mean, in terms of the war, torture, the war, you know, uh, very angry. And I don't want to, you know, gainsay the degree to which I was very upset in 2004. Yeah. And so look, take, take what I'm saying now with a grain of salt. You know, maybe this is too much political. Maybe I'm just too invested in it. I can, I'll own up to that. Okay. But I don't, it doesn't feel that way to me. Yeah, uh, or to me, and um, it th- this this uh, shortcut the shortcomings <laughs> um, arrive uh, at a time when the presidency has never been more powerful, and also arrives uh, with a legislature that appears as if it will be 
pretty supine. Submissive. Yeah, pretty submissive. And there were electoral reasons for that too, yeah. right? Um, well, I, there may be, I have to say. Political I've, science reasons. So another, it'll be interesting to see. In another show, I'll go into why that pisses me off. Right. But, um, but uh, yeah. So, so um, yeah, to, to, um, to, to hand to someone, to, to hand someone an enormous amount of power who has the defects you just mentioned, and I agree with you, I don't see any evidence. Um, of an inner life? I mean, it's like... Yeah, I, I mean, in the, the indecency of the last 16, 18 months um, ha- has been continually shocking. Right. Um, and, uh, wow. You know, so, so some of the things I've seen from my conservative friends are, are appeals to finally do something about executive power. They've been concerned about it for the past eight years. They feel like, uh, especially the immigration enforcement decisions have been an abuse of executive power. There are, and, and so it's kind of this like, well, I'm glad to see liberals will finally get on board with the executive. And I think at some point we can do a show about that. That was one sure. of the suggestions from one of our listeners yep. that, that we could do. And I think we need to deal with that at a more distant point when we can, when we're less inflamed with passion. Right. Yes. Uh, Agreed. because I think there are serious issues there. I'm not sure that I'll have, you know, I don't feel myself suddenly regretting the powers used by Obama. I need to think about that more. That's something I need to think about more. Uh, but I just thought we should acknowledge that it's out there, uh, since you raise the right. power of the presidency, that, that one thing that the kind of, especially the never Trump conservatives that, that I follow and that you, that you probably know as well have been arguing is that this is going to come back to bite us. It's kind of like, I don't know if you had this experience taking like CivPro and administrative law and, and you read these cases and, uh, as a naive person filled with politics and, and less filled with doctrine and experience in the law, it's very easy to get swept up in the justice of a given case yeah. and it causes you to support a particular rule of law about notice and comment or whatever else. Yep. And then it's applied in another case in a way that really, you know, <laughs> and you're like, whoa, when you're a law student, that's right. very, whoa, I didn't mean that. Exactly. Ah, interesting. Let's, I think that's, let's talk about that. Which is a terrific opportunity for personal growth. Totally. Right? And, a, and a lesson in how the rule of law mediates these pluralistic attitudes we have towards substance in, in an important way. And so it makes you think, huh, maybe, maybe I need to think more generally about my preferences about fairness and power and less about, a little bit less about results. Yeah. Um, that yeah. leveling up experience of seeing how, yeah, because what, what that invites is you to explore there's, uh, there are different levels. There yeah. are questions about how to answer questions. That's right. That's right. Um, and that's, that's my theory. Is there you are know. questions about how to answer questions about questions. Right. I was just reminded, uh, <laughs> I was just reminded of this too, uh, in conversation because you, know, you, you think about how, how does this keep happening where, um, regardless of how you feel about the election, you have to acknowledge that most of the, that, that a huge chunk of the electorate doesn't have the right information, <laughs> right? They, they have, they have whatever preferences they have, which are truly legitimate in terms of what they think is wrong in their lives, right? What they don't necessarily know is who to blame. And this is something that I've increasingly agree with Justice Scalia on, right? So Justice Scalia's whole theory in the Tanner Lectures, we've talked about this with mm-hmm. Will Bowen, we've talked about it many times before, I highlight it in classes that I teach. His whole theory of originalism has to do with making transparent who the decision makers are rather than muddling right. it by passing it through many institutions. And so right. one of the things that may, one of the things I think is fundamentally broken with our system is that this division of power that we've created in order to avoid a King George. Right in fact, obscures transparency about 
who's responsible. So it not only restrains getting things done, which was the design of it, but whatever does get done and the form in which it gets done is impossibly like it, you, it's always possible to point fingers at other people. I agree that that does seem to be the case that the vitocracy has uh, created such a shambolic uh, ability to tell every story about every outcome. Right. That it, it really just leaves people bewildered. And although I don't think it was designed to do that, uh, I don't think it was designed with the intention to do that. I think that is uh, in large part what it does. Um, and in the that Justice David Souter conversation video that people have been linking yeah. um, from a few years ago, mm-hmm. where he talks about uh, the Ben Franklin, you know, or Republic if you can keep it, quip, and what worried him about that. Uh, it's this is exactly what he described, right? right. Which is the unabil- the inability to attribute responsibility for various outcomes to the people who are actually responsible it's for the them. Complexity of attribution, yeah, yeah, is a real problem. I mean, it, it is it is a real challenge to governance, to successful self governance, right? Um, it's the it's the dual edge of power, right? Um, by 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 consolidating power. Like in, in our parliament, which has absolute authority, they appoint the prime minister. There's a government. It's clear who to blame. I, it, maybe it's not always. I mean, there's so much to talk about here, and I'm, we're not going to get right. into it. But let me just speak very, very generally. Yes. Okay. And and then we'll go on with our mailbag, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which we may never actually get to. Giving more power to a particular group within a government helps to increase accountability more generally. Yes. But it also increases the danger of using too much power, right? I mean, yeah. so, so you may be concerned with like sharing power in order to um, restrain government from acting, you know, responding to, you know, too much kind of inflamed passion and response. Say, say there's a terrorist attack, right? right? I mean, one thing that divided government does is it slows down responses and cools the, cools yeah. the temperature of the, uh, but on the other hand, it does it serves this other function that we just talked about. Like you don't know who to blame because nobody's responsible for not getting things done. And there are other ways or parallel ways to independent ways to deal with some of those uh, problems. So it sort of moves and counter moves, right? So you can imagine uh, a system of government that had a more parliamentary character on the executive and legislative side, but also had a commitment to individual rights and counter majoritarian safeguards right that would have a written set of protections right um and i think in some way the contemporary uk has is achieved this synthesis quite recently in historical terms um and uh and And so 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 yeah so identifying the the challenge and the it isn't is just a step along the way toward developing institutions that might provide you the right mix. And, and curiously, in in the UK, it's like it's Brexit that's muddied the accountability waters, right? Because there's this referendum, and now there's this question of does Parliament have to just carry forth the will of the voters, or do they have indeed? They have, and, and there's this High Court ruling. Anyway, I, I've just seen briefly about it. I don't know all the details, but suddenly it starts to be not one institution's decision about what you. Do and it becomes and some more of those complexities came out in our conversation with Tim they about did. about that. Yeah, 
Um, and, and we should probably have another episode about that next spring uh, when more Brexit developments have sort of moved further along because it because it, it, it touches on this theme of accountability and how can you govern yourself if you don't know how to talk about really consequential things that have just happened right in which you thought you were playing some part right. <laughs> and you don't understand the nature of the transmission belt between the part you played and the outcome. Mm-hmm. That's very confounding and frustrating, as and, it would, and it would be to anybody. And you can see it in Obamacare. I mean, with Obamacare, there's not Medicaid expansion has not happened everywhere, but a lot of voters say, "Well, there's Obamacare. I'm not better off. My premiums are going up. There's no public option. Who's responsible for right. the shape of that legislation?" It's it's very complicated. Yeah, because in 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 the the best of all worlds, from the point of view of the president, I'm sure it would look different. Right in the best sure. of all worlds, it would look very different. Uh, but this was the compromise that could get through. So what, how do we, what attitude should voters take toward that compromise? Yeah. Anyway, I, we're not going to get it all done now. I think we should at least start to, let's go through the mailbag a little bit. Okay. Let's go through it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we've got, you want to start with this? I've got a September 21st from Chris, listener Chris. He's emailing about the random walk show that we did, which was a discussion of the appropriateness of particular media for scholarship or ideas. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and he says he has a kind of a journalism background. Um, how do I summarize this? Let me just read it. I think this stood out because of the journalism background. And uh, it was interesting time to, to be in school to get a front row seat to watch the industry grapple with new media. The priorities in that field, primarily for most outlets, at least faster dissemination of news, make it somewhat more straightforward than in law, where the priorities in sharing ideas are a little less concrete. And newer media clearly make it easier to accomplish that goal, although we've seen quality and accuracy suffer for the increase in speed and immediacy, sometimes with terrible results. So he gives example of the cyber witch hunt following the mistaken identification of the Boston bombing suspects. Remember that stuff on Reddit? Where they I were, do. Yeah. Uh, I haven't had the opportunity to go back and listen to the entire OA discography. I love that. I love that we have a discography, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> One day we'll be on Wikipedia, Joe. Absolutely. One, and, and we'll get there. Um, so I'm not sure if it's been discussed, but it would be interesting to hear you expand on this idea more. Does the same trade-off between timeliness and quality plague le- legal academy as it does in the press? How do the different goals and priorities of legal scholarship and the news affect choice of media decisions? Presumably it's not one size fits all, and so which considerations would go in to one type of piece meriting a certain medium versus another? So he just says he likes the show and, and wants to know our, our thoughts on that. I feel like we've talked about this uh, before, but certainly worth talking about it again. I, I agree. There's no one size fits all. I think we're trying to figure this out as we go along, right? I mean, this show is, is partly an, an attempt to figure out what kinds of ideas work in podcasts as opposed to like this 80 page thing that I just wrote. And, yeah, you I know? think that's right. And there's, uh, there's stuff that is more like legal press coverage. I mean, there, there's, there's right. press coverage that on the law beat which has to happen with uh, in a time horizon that's very different from writing a piece about what to make of the last 25 years of the court's much more active patent law jurisprudence, something I'm working on right now, right? That's, yeah. that, whether that comes out next year or five years from now, it, that, it, that makes no difference <laughs> right? In, in any practical way that a person could trace, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's meant to occur on a different time horizon. Right. Its timeliness is uh, is unfolds over a much longer period, so the date when it arrives is less important mm-hmm. necessarily. Um, we, so you've got everything, and you've got everything in between. You remember the show we did about guns after Orlando, and we talked about this idea that I had about 
strict a kind of strict liability in yeah. this way. It, like that that's the kind of thing where we talked about on the show, you know, maybe I should have written it down either would that be better on a blog should it be an essay that i immediately get out to an online journal i was in the middle of working on some other things so that's the sort of thing which is totally unlike the thing that i wrote before this thing that you're working on right it's like if it's going to you know it could still be relevant five years from now it you know very likely will be sadly i believe it will be yeah but but there's some there's some concern with immediacy that there that this is something that could help now and and isn't just for um cogitation and and kind of Right. embedding over time into yeah. legal practice, right? So There's, we're grappling with all the same range of things because law, r- writing about law in a thoughtful way spans the entire range right? of timeliness and, um, and sort of, you know, slow motion unfoldingness. Yeah. It's kind of, like, you think about like trials for safety and eff- efficacy in the FDA and, you know, sometimes they stop, it's either working so well that they stop the trials or it's right because of the right. harms that people have. They don't, yeah. have, or, or they'll stop the trials because it's dangerous. Like immediacy works even in those cases, right? Where, where your timeline for doing things kind of depends on the effect. Yeah. Yeah. Should we go to the next one? Yeah. Uh, this is about our uh, conversation uh, with Simon Stern, I think mm-hmm. about narrative in law and the perhaps attention uh, this is listener Taylor attention about um, suspense and might not suspense undermine uh, well for example opinion writing right um, because uh, it, it might lead someone to think that multiple outcomes are roughly equally plausible um, see this is interesting because it gets to um, it gets to the idea that I, I actually think most appellate uh, let's say this of appellate decision making um, and certainly of Supreme Court decision making, um, the, there usually are multiple highly plausible outcomes. And sure. So, and so I actually think it's not about suspense. I, I, I think it's not at all, dri- the way I view it, what I would like to see more of isn't driven on my part by an appetite for suspense. It's driven by an appetite for candor. Right. I believe it would be better for judges to find a way to talk more about the fact that they are finding their way through multiple highly plausible outcomes and ways to talk about those outcomes. An opinion that says, frankly, here's why this is a difficult case. Yes. And here's why I think this difficult issue should be resolved this way. And there is great merit in this thing I am choosing not to do. Right. And so, so listener, um, Taylor writes, in a judicial opinion, if a judge withholds the winner until the very end while writing a, on the one hand, on the other hand, opinion, suspense will be heightened and will cause the loser to be more than crushed at the end. A more emotional loser may tend to see the judgment as less just and legitimate, right? So this is, we're about to get into another email about emotion. But um, I found this really interesting because I, and and listener um, Taylor mentions the um, Obamacare 1 decision as maybe a possible, you know, possible appellate you know, where I don't, I don't remember how that was announced. The handing down, I've never listened to the handing down of this. I think, I, I don't know if Oye has this yet as to whether it wasn't clear until the end. I know there were lots of reporters outside who got it wrong because they read Indeed. one part and didn't read the other part. Uh, but, um, so I don't know how suspense played into it. I have to think back. But what I teach a case called Popo versus Hayashi in 
in property law, which is the Barry Bonds milestone home run ball case, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the Barry Bonds hits a historic home run ball into the stands and two people say that they caught it and they end up suing over it. And it, right. it's a disaster because they both end up losing money. Although one of them ends up getting a little bit because the lawyers take a pass on the fee. So it's, it's a crazy story, crazy <laughs> story. What happens after they both have some claim on this ball? Um, but the way the judge announced the opinion was to kind of walk through, describe it, and then talk about the possible standards to be applied. And then actually, and, and then says, well, this first guy, he didn't obtain possession of the ball under this standard. And then he says, but that does not resolve this case. And then he talks about how the other guy was not an aggressor and therefore not at fault. And uh, I play some video clips of, of this in, in my class, including some news media reports on it. And they were saying it was like watching a good game. Like you would think, oh, the judge is going to do it, is going to give it to Popov. Oh, no, it's going to be Hayashi. And no, it's going to be Popov on these grounds. And they were saying there was a lot, of, they were describing it as a lot of suspense. So exactly what listener Taylor is talking about occurred in that case. Right. And the judge, when he was reading his opinion, you know, when he said, but that does not resolve this case, kind of looked up and smiled a little bit, kind of <laughs> smirked, right? Like he was acknowledging that he had built in suspense to the opinion. What do you think about this? Is that legitimate? Well, I mean, I mean, it isn't what, look, it isn't what I would do. If I were writing opinions, I would, it would be very clear from the first moment, not first moment, it would be very clear from the end of the first paragraph who won and who lost. I I don't doubt that for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, Christian is making a joke about my personality. What I meant was. Isn't that what this whole show is? Yeah. This this whole show is a very extended joke about my personality. Uh, The tagline after all the episodes are in the can is going to be something like one man's journey into self-realization. I, I don't know what it's going to be, but yeah. it, like, it's not going to be about what it appears to be about. Right. Yeah. Uh, much like the Bob Newhart, it was all a dream. <laughs> uh, no, it, it would be clear because it would say, I mean, an opinion I wrote would say at the end of the first paragraph, you know, the, for the reasons stated below, X is the winner. <laughs> um and and so you just and then you'd go and you but but along the way and again this isn't about suspense right it's um and, and i and frankly i think the judge you describe in the in the hayashi baseball case um that to me sounds like self-indulgent behavior and i would i i actually would prefer better from jurists but but put that to the side maybe uh, i don't know yeah. i'm just go, telling you how yeah, it yeah, hits yeah, me yeah, that's yeah. how it hits me yeah um but and as i said put it to the side um the 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 thing that's not about suspense is to grapple with the genuinely difficult, uh, hard to pin down aspects of the law. Uh, honestly, well, this, sh- such, this shades right? into the next email because it, you know what? Let me just say this, Joe. What many people would put to the side—that's what we feast on on this show. You know what I mean? <laughs> but fair uh, enough. So, so, so maybe the emotion of suspense caused by writing it that way helps people to understand why the case and to feel that the case is difficult in a way they wouldn't if the judge just announced the winner and then there's a bunch of legalese explaining why it's difficult, right? So, so maybe the narrative form of the opinion helped a lot of people understand the difficulty of the case in a way that they would not have had they followed your, um, That's your possible. advice. So this, as I said, shades into the next email. From listener Matt. Listener Matt. And listener Matt writes that after listening to our entrails show, this was the Charles Barzin. Yeah, the discussion with Charles. He read this uh, post by Paul Horwitz in a new light. And do you, did you did you read the Horwitz post on Prof's blog? Um, I did not read the Horwitz post. So, I so this I, was. I did, I'm sure I did in the past because I'm a regular Prof's blog reader. Yeah. 
this was critiquing a judge who had included a lot of kind of um, disturbing pictures from the civil rights movement mm. in an opinion that illustrated the importance of the legal issue okay. at stake. You know, weren't evidence from the particular case itself. And the yep. question is, what is the propriety of that, mm. uh, of mm. a judge appealing to emotion in, the, in that way? Right. And so Matt's, Matt's question is this. Are appeals to emotion really off limits? And if so, how strong is this norm? Would appealing to emotions be like consulting innards or would it be like using Lochner? Or would it be like using an older, less nuanced form of originalism? If they're off limits, is it because we've adopted a sort of quasi-logical reason-oriented system of judicial review that disdains nonverbal appeals to emotions? And does our judicial judicial system require that? It reminded me of the de- uh, debate around poor Joshua. Anyway, all this is way outside my bailiwick, but thanks for taking us on these intellectual journeys with you. Thought this might be an interesting topic for a follow-up, particularly in light of Christian's paper. So, because it's about cognitive stuff and the way that we process right. what the law is. So, um, did you have thoughts about this? Well, I did, and it, it's funny that he references poor, the poor Joshua uh, line. Uh, this is from a dissent by Justice Blackman in a case called DeShaney against Winnebago County, I believe that's the name of the case. Uh, because the, the poor Joshua uh, opinion is comes in for some analysis and discussion in this uh, piece by Jamal Green, who this is a professor at Columbia, I think he's at Columbia, um, the, certainly this law review piece is in the Columbia Law yes. Review, and it's about um, uh, p- the uh, pathetic argument in constitutional law. Now, the word pathetic is being used here in a sort of classical sense, pathos. Right? an argument from pathos, right. uh, rather than a logical argument or an ethical appeal, uh, which is to the morality of the, of the listener. Uh, it's a, a pathetic appeal or a pathos appeal. It's an emotional, it's an argument uh, based in and on emotion. And this piece is great. He gave it as a talk here at UGA. It's a fantastic piece. It's it's lengthy. It's rich. It's engaging. And I think uh, listener Matt might want to look at it. Uh, other people might want to look at it uh, because it turns out that um, emotion and argument in and from emotion p- routinely plays a role in judicial opinions. And so and there are ways that it that it validly can and prudently can. And there are probably ways it prudently shouldn't and couldn't. Uh, so I think Professor Green has really kind of systematically plumbed the depths on this, and and people who are interested in that question really ought to look at that piece. And I'm actually not sure there's any other way. I mean, I'm not sure it's even possible to wring emotion out because I'm not sure the human conceptual system even works that way. Uh, that's a great point. Because I, I think logic is emotion. There's not something in the human conceptual system that is logic separated from the same systems that provide emotional responses um, in terms of like re-simulated sensory experiences, re, you know, that I, I just remember even doing mathematics and we talked about this on the show and I wrote a little bit in the paper about it, but like e- even doing mathematics, you have a, it's, it's sensation and it's, and it's perception. Like you, you, you know, you, you see other things, you, you know, you see mental pictures that help you feel whether a solution is going in the right way or not, or whether a, a proof is is moving in the right way. Yeah, in a way it gets to the question of, you know, what, how are we constructed? I mean, we're, we're sort of, we're embodied, uh, we have uh, our, our brains, our swimming and hormones and other <laughs> chemicals, and it's, right. you know, we, our emotional system and our logical system are part of a neural system, and how do all these things work? Could you right? possibly think about good faith without mental stories of good faith, without thinking of those narratives that trigger emotions that you may think correspond to logic, and maybe they do, but 
um, there's, it's a feeling, right? It's a feeling or cruel and unusual punishment. Maybe I go back to history and, but you know, maybe I look at, but, but even Justice Scalia said he was a faint hearted originalist for precisely that reason. You know, due process, what process is due? What is fair process? Right. And how do you think about fairness? Right. Um, and so sometimes, you know, and in this, the, the case, um, that the last email referenced, emotion is what makes you feel the gravity of the decision. It's, it's what makes you feel the important, like, why should I devote this much space? Why do I need to engage this deeply with the opposing views? Why is this a difficult question? That's something which is felt, I think, more than it is analyzed. Right. And one also has to be mindful that the, a thing that can make it feel weighty in the way that you were just describing can actually ultimately be misleading in a given situation. It depends, right? right? It depends on everything else that is that relates to what you're trying to do, right? Um, it could get you to overemphasize something that actually, in a fuller set of considerations, you might come to view as less important. Yeah, and people are well familiar, and I have students. I have one student right now writing about this, and I've, been, I've had students write about emotion and law before, and there's some really great articles out there, but. Like everybody's familiar, when you're angry, you're more likely to take on board certain kinds of information. When you are sad, other kinds of information. Like you're, the way you conceive and perceive the world depends on that emotional state, but also the, the, the emotional state depends on the way you perceive and conceive the world. So it's, we, we are complicated machines, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. And the writtenness of judicial opinions means that they look the way they look uh, after an enormous amount of labor and reflection. They are not... Um, we're not walking around holding recording devices next to judges so we can get their, you know, emotional outbursts or whatever. That's right. not what a written opinions are. They're, yeah. they're usually produced by m- more than one person, even if the only thing the other person does is sort of copy edit or site check. Right. I mean, th- these are these are elaborately produced written things. So whatever emotion they contain, whatever logic they contain. They, they contain because someone very reflectively and deliberately decided to put them there. That's important to keep in mind, too. I'm not going to lie. I feel kind of spent. Okay, cool. Uh, we're not through the mailbag. No, we got, and we're not. We got, and I think given that the rest of the mailbag is about our originalism episode, which we only just had. Almost all. We got a letter from listener Jason. I got one thing I want to mention from listener Bunny. Who was talking about our website transition? Mentioned a couple things. Okay, what I what I would like to say is the originalism originalism yeah. things that we've got. Let's put those to the side. Yes. Let's do the other two things you just mentioned, and then I think we're going to call it a day. Well, let's put. I want to put listener Jason's off too because I'm not ready. It has to do with self driving cars and stuff. I think it's totally cool. But we, you're, you're right. That was not about originalism. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But, that, but I think with that one. Let's zip up the mailbag again. But I would, I did want to mention two things which are kind of more housekeeping, but okay. I think interesting. One of the things and that listener Bunny was asking about was after we made the transition to the new website yes. and all that, uh, what about the oral argument index, this very helpful thing that allows you to see all of our old guests and, and click on tags and see all the shows tagged with that topic? That still exists. Still exists at the old URL. We may transition to having the oral argument index kind of built into the new web page, but, okay. but it still exists. It's still going to be updated, and there's a link to it on the new, uh, uh, there's a link to it from the new site. Uh, I'll drop a link to the Oral Argument Index in the show notes, but I think it is a helpful resource. And I should say, too, Joe, that, um, you know, if you if like I do, you teach a class that involves papers, 
a really good way to get a student started on a topic, especially if you're not expert in it, is to refer them to a show where we talk to an expert. Mm. Even if they don't listen to it, like I always tell myself, you don't have to listen, but I, I spent some time compiling links from that show. Interesting. And that will get you started. So yeah, if I, great if I have point. a student who's working on like um, law and narrative. Yeah, you know, or the, the Simon, Simon Stern, Stern show. Or the, and... or the Lisa Kern Griffin show. We've got right. two shows now with a lot of links. That can really get a student uh, up to speed. And if you're a student writing a paper, you know, click on those tags. Maybe you'll find something in there that could that could help you write a paper. Yep. I think it's a pretty useful resource, even if great idea. Even if, admittedly, you and I are not always the best resource. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have great guests. Uh, the other one is um, on uh, from Twitter. Mm. Uh, uh, David Ziff mm. has written an article citing us about the blue book. About the blue book. And so we will link that up in the show notes. And, and we're not, I'm not going to say anything about it now. I think because I think talking about you know, <laughs> it's it's almost like the lower the stakes, the more I have to say. Mm. <laughs> so well, I think we I think we may have another like writing slash blue book slash oh. legal writing instruction show. I think that would be a great show cool. to have in the future. Yeah, I would and like to do that. Goodness too. knows I would like to talk about something with uh, and I say lower stakes, although let me be serious for a second. Improving students writing is one of our most important jobs. The ability yeah. to take what's in your head. Put it on a paper so that other people can take that thing which was in your head into their head. That's hard, and it's it really hard to teach students. And, and David, I think, is is terrific. I've been, you know, I follow him on Twitter, and he has yeah. usually really great advice about for students and about. And, and so I'm, uh, I think this article, um, although I'm not sure I agree, but we can come back to the blue book and have another. He's sticking up for the blue book in a, in a way that very <laughs> few people are doing right now. Right. So it's good on that ground alone. Let's hear what he's got to say about the Blue Book. So, exactly. yeah, people should look at it. Do we have – I think that's it for now. It is. I think we're going to zip everything else back up. I'm so sorry. There's listener Asher who wrote something about um, originalism we haven't gotten to. We will get to those We are because we're, we are only just getting started with these interpretive theory questions. Listener and guest Charles – Of which originalism is just a part. Listener and guest Charles sends a shout-out about how he enjoyed the show. Indeed. Um, can't wait to get back to it. Let's. <laughs> are we going to close the book on this one? Yes. You don't hit stop. I, you know, I always look to you for some kind of like way to kind of close up the show. That I don't make know us why you do. Better. It's it's it, this is episode one hundred and seventeen. <laughs> it has never happened, not once. I don't. So I don't know why you look to me for that. This week of all weeks, uh, the way I stop things is stop them. <laughs> That's our listeners want closure. They want a they want a heaping dose of Joe to kind of put the lid on this week. You know, it's just something a good Joe rant at the end or something. But you got nothing though, huh? They really don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> they really don't. Yeah, I feel and, like and, that... and heaven knows I don't. Uh, all right, all right. I guess I will just hit stop. Good uh, idea. Bye, Joe. I bye. love you, Joe. I love you too. <laughs>